So, so far, we've looked at, um, we did an introduction week, we had a week on silence and on solitude, uh, and then last week we began a look at community. And we're going to carry on this week, we're going to do community again, a different sort of, we're going to go over some of what we did last week, uh, and then we're going to carry on with some other observations to make about community. And the reason for that is that actually I'm convinced that one of the most significant aspects for us in embracing any of these rhythms that we've talked about, or that we're going to talk about, is understanding that these rhythms aren't just practiced as individuals, but they're practiced in community. That actually the richness of them doesn't come from just sitting in our quiet space practicing these sorts of rhythms, but actually they're embraced when we do them all together. And when we begin to build things like accountability and rhythms. But it does mean that we need to have a robust understanding of what we mean by the Christian community, the faith community, the church. And so last week we looked at Mark chapter 3 verses 31 to 35 and we talked about how in those passages Jesus does something remarkable where he takes the family idea and he turns it on his head. So this is the passage where Jesus is in a room and his mother and brothers come outside and they call for him to come out and he says, who are my mothers and my brothers? And he turns here and he says, these are my brothers and sisters, my mothers, my brothers and my sisters. Here, in other words, they are the ones who do the will of God, is what he says. And so he begins to invert this whole idea of where our allegiance lies. He begins to change this idea of what it is to belong to the family of God. And we looked last week at just how profoundly that begins to change the way that we live in the world. And what I want us to do today is then to begin to build on that idea and to continue to think about what it is for us to be the community of God and how we actually practice that. And then we're going to look at seven things that are, I think, marks of the kind of community or the practices that we would have. Some of these we're going to come back to in the weeks and months ahead. Others will be talked about today and maybe never mentioned again. Um, this is the passage we have based this entire series on. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 29. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest, says Jesus. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And it's that goal that we have in mind through all of these practices. Not some fancy new way of talking about discipleship. Not some clever way for us to do community. But actually a deep commitment to the idea that we're wanting to live out this abundant life. This free and light life that Jesus offers to us. I'm going to read to us. I think six different passages that I have and I'm just going to look through these and then I'm going to make a couple of comments and then we're going to dig into these seven ideas that I want us to look at this morning. So we're going to be in the book of Ephesians if you have your Bible. Uh, We're going to do three readings from Ephesians and then one from Colossians. So that makes four not six. It's not that difficult to count that high, is it? Uh, okay, Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 to 6. 
As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then if you skip down to verse 14 in chapter 4. Then we, no long, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For him the whole body... Joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And then if you go to the very end of chapter 4 and to verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ has loved us. I think I didn't put that on, sorry. Uh, Just as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then finally, Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to read from verses 11 through to 15. Jonathan's going to click the clicker when the pages need turned because, yeah, that'll do. Because it saved me having to do it. Uh, Therefore, as God, sorry, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful amen the word of God thank you okay community I want to make two things clear today hopefully The necessity of community for practicing the Christian life. That's the Bonhoeffer quote we talked about over the last two weeks. That let him who is afraid of being alone uh, fear community. And let him who is afraid of being in community fear being alone. It's that idea that we absolutely must have community. And I want to, in order to practice any meaningful Christian life. And then these practices of following Jesus, that they are best expressed in community. Those are the two things I want us to get out of uh, today as we go through these various bits and pieces. 
So the first of these practices, and we talked about this last week, but I want to say a wee bit more about it because I do think it is profoundly important. The New Testament has a deep, in fact the entire scriptures have a deep concern for hospitality. Not just for the idea of entertaining one another, but for offering hospitality. And as I said a few weeks ago, hospitality is actually not just about spending time with our friends or the people we like. It actually comes from the Greek word which is, means love of stranger. And so actually it's about embracing strangers. It's about creating a space where we express hospitality to those who are not like us. And that can mean lots of things. It can mean our homes, and it should certainly mean that. It should mean a Sunday morning. It should certainly mean that. And I said last week, I would like us to be much more diverse. We're a little bit monochromatic in here. We're a little bit all too white. We're a little bit all of the same age. We're a little bit all of those sorts of things. We should be different. There should be people in here that make life difficult. It should be difficult to rub up against the person next to you because they're not supposed to agree with you on everything. That's what it means to welcome strangers. Somebody said something that I missed there. I'm going to ignore it and move right on. But it should mean that we are not the same. And hospitality should cost us something. The Bible knows nothing of a hospitality that's just freely given and costs us nothing. The Bible knows of a hospitality that is costly. The ultimate hospitality is expressed in the communion table, where Jesus welcomes us to a table which cost him everything. And we will talk about communion in a few weeks' time as a practice that we should embrace. Hospitality is costly. But here's the thing. There's a power thing that goes on, and we've got to be really careful about this, because it's actually really easy for us to become the powerful people, particularly those of us who are white, particularly those of us who are male, particularly those of us who are middle class, who exist in a culture where we have some power, whether we think it that way or not. And actually, we begin to use hospitality as a means of expressing that power. So what we're doing is we're saying, well, come to me and we can express hospitality. And it creates some sense of self-worth and that kind of thing and social standing because we do that. That's the antithesis. It's the opposite of Christian hospitality. Because Christian hospitality is about taking the place of weakness and vulnerability. So when Jesus welcomed the outcast to the table, it didn't bring him any credit. In fact, it brought him a great deal of shame. And so we need to be careful. And actually, one of the ways I think we can express that in our current culture is by receiving hospitality. Because we begin to put ourselves in the position of vulnerability. So if we're talking about this as a practice, we should be looking for opportunities not only to offer hospitality, but to receive hospitality. So when someone invites us somewhere and wants to offer hospitality, would we go out of our way to be able to accept that? particularly those of us who would be seen as somewhat powerful in our culture. 
I want to read to you uh, from this book um, by a woman called Christine Pohl. If, if you're interested in hospitality, this is the best book to read, bar none. Um, it's called uh, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition. Um, it's quite, well, I was going to say it's old. It's about 25 years old, this book now, I think. But um, it's a, a really significant book. I want to read to you uh, from this. She's talking here about just what I've been talking about. She says, This blending of poor and weak persons with influential leaders was another significant return to early Christian understandings of hospitality. Table fellowship that included different sorts of people brought all closer and reflected the diversity of the anticipated heavenly banquet. That's why it matters that we do that sort of stuff. It's not just because it's a good idea here, but because we're painting a picture of the world that is yet to come. Wesley rejoiced that these homes for widows were reflected apostolic institutions as well as the kingdom. I have blessed God for this house ever since it began, says Wesley, so that it is not in vain that without any design of so doing, we have copied after another of the institutions of the apostolic age. And I can now say to all the world, come and see how these Christians love one another. Hospitality isn't just an internal exercise. It has missional significance. People see how we treat one another. Hospitality, I think, is a practice that we need to begin to embrace and a rhythm that we need to embrace in our church. And many do. Please don't hear me saying, we don't do this, cracking the whip. Many do. Press on. Would many more of us begin to do that? That's the first The second, forgiveness. Each of those passages I read in Ephesians and in Colossians talked about this notion of forgiveness. And the thing I love about it is Paul doesn't say, you must not ever fall out, you dear Christians. How dare you be the church and not get on? It's not like that. Because Paul was writing to real world situations and to real people in real places with real conflict. Because there were all sorts of different kinds of people in the church. And so what does Paul say? He doesn't say, I want you never to disagree. He says, I want you to sort it out properly. I want you to offer forgiveness. And actually that is a practice that throughout church history has been a profoundly important practice. The communion table. Sort your, If you've got anything against a brother or a sister, go and deal with it before you come to the table. Those sorts of things have been practices throughout church history. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you, says Paul in Ephesians. We have to be in a place where we forgive one another. Forgiveness is a difficult thing though, right? Can we just be honest about that? It'd be dead easy just to stand here and say, oh, forgive one another, it's all fine. But actually, it's profoundly difficult for two reasons. One, because genuine hurt occurs. And there's a real risk that we say something in forgiveness that we say, well, the hurt didn't matter. I don't want to say that at all. The hurt profoundly matters. The hurt profoundly matters. And it doesn't excuse someone or make them any less guilty. But forgiveness is our call to pattern our life after Jesus rather than after the world. 
Forgiveness is the choice to say, yes, you hurt me. Yes, you did wrong, but I choose to forgive you because God has forgiven me. It's profoundly difficult to forgive. Profoundly difficult. And yet it's necessary if we are to be a community that reflects something of the goodness of God to the world around us. Because we should be different. If people at the bowling club at the back of my house fall out, then they should just fall out and be done with it. They've got no real motivation to offer forgiveness or sort it out other than the regular running of their bowling club. And for some that's important enough that they would swallow their pride and sort it out. But for many it's not. They'll just fall out and the bowling club will eventually crumble and die. But that's not okay for the people of God. That's not what the Bible teaches us we are to do. We are to offer forgiveness to those who it's necessary to forgive. Self-awareness. I talked a little bit about this last week. We, um, we live in a selfie age, right? Everybody's walking about taking photos of themselves. I, I was in Edinburgh uh, in the centre of town a couple of weeks ago and uh, there was two uh, tourists uh, who were trying to take a photograph with the Scott Monument in the background and they were contorted at all sorts of angles trying to get their arm in the right place to have them in the photo and the Scott Monument. Now, if you think about how big the Scott Monument is, it was quite an achievement. So I went up to them and I said, would you like me to take the photo for you? Right? That seemed like a kindly thing to do. And they're like, no, 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 we want a selfie. I was a bit like you still be in the photo. It'll just look like you've got a really long arm or something. I don't know. But um, we have this culture of kind of like, we're looking at ourselves. Um, and for the most part, I want to make fun of that. But actually, there's something profoundly important about that self-reflection, that self-awareness. And community brings that. As I said last week, we, we, we had our friends from Australia staying with us, and I, I genuinely can't tell you how big a joy that was for us as a family. But uh, we have a small family. There's Karen and I and Zoe. There's three of us. It's, you know, we have our ways of being, just like you have your ways of being as a family. And then suddenly we have uh, two adults and three kids join us. So our family has now grown from three to eight and our flat didn't get any bigger. And, you know, I didn't get any more patient or anything like that. And so suddenly there's just a whole lot else going on. And in particular, there was a lot more noise. You know, there's a, a seven-year-old boy who's just filled with seven-year-old boyness, right? It's just a thing. And uh, we're not used to that. Or I'm not used to that. And so suddenly I'm like, I'm pulling my hair out about midway through the week, having a great time, deeply love them. And I'm like, I don't, what I'd, and then suddenly I had this moment where I realized this, this isn't about Oscar or the kids in general or the hormones being with us. This is about me. What's going on in me? Why don't I have the patience here? Why am I getting ratty here? And as soon as I sat down to look at it, I realized that I was anxious about all sorts of things. And I had this much capacity. And that just got used up in about half a second. And now I'm just ratty at the kids. So the issue is me, not them. But that only comes about because I was put in a position of having to exist in a community 
quite intimately for a week. And it brings self-reflection. If we're doing community well, it will cause us to be looking in our phones with the selfie camera on. What's going on in me? And let me encourage you to ask that question. When something in community is bugging you, when it's getting on your nerves, whether that's a person or the way we're doing something or whatever, before we go saying, that's rubbish, or those new tellies are a nuisance, or that Glenn, he's a pest, or whatever, and those all may be true, but before we get to that, could we ask, what's going on in me? What's happening in me? Could we embrace that as a rhythm, as a practice of self-reflection? When stuff annoys us, could we look inside first? It may be that we have to come and say, listen, the music's too loud, I can't cope with it, or the words are not big enough on the new screens, or whatever. But if it's getting you really angry or frustrated, perhaps first look inside and then we can begin to deal with some of the outside stuff. Does that make sense? Self-awareness. Learning. And I don't just mean a little bit of knowledge. I mean this kind of learning. The sort of stuff where you look in a book and you go, oh, I've never seen that before. I had no idea what that was. That kind of learning. Now, it's been my privilege over the last 15 years of being in ministry to read hundreds of books. Hundreds of books. And there are great books, at, like the Christine Pohl one. And there are equally as many, in fact, ten times as many rubbish books that I've read. But it's been my privilege to learn that way. But I want to tell you that the most significant and the best learning I have done has not come out of a book, but from being around people. Learning about myself, learning about the world. What, what do I know about biogas? Nothing. What do I know about the life of people in Africa? Nothing. What do I know about the fact that we can make choices here that have profound effects on the other side of the world? Almost nothing. But we have people around who understand that stuff. And so I get to learn and become smarter. But not just smarter, I get to become more empathetic. I get to be, to understand something of what it is when Jesus says that we're to care for the whole world. So people like Joel help us to understand that. There's lots of different ways that that happens. When uh, I'll share at our church meeting today, I had a conversation with Winnie this week that was just so life-giving to me. Uh, A lady who's been a member in this church for 74 years, I believe it is. And she taught me something. Something profound that I wouldn't have learned, I don't think, from anyone my own age, but I was able to learn from somebody who's walked a long distance and sees the world just a different way. The learning we want to do, I presume all of us as followers of Jesus, is not best done in a study with the door closed and our books open, but actually with our hearts open and our lives open to those that are in community with us. And hear me, I'm not being anti-intellectual here. Do the reading, do the work. But actually, the best learning will be the learning that we get from one another and that we work out among one another. So embrace learning as a practice. That makes sense? Three more, quickly. 
worship. This whole first section of this series is about what does it mean for us to be with Jesus. We talked about being with Jesus in solitude, but we're also talking about being with Jesus uh, in community. And so actually worship becomes profoundly important. And I don't just mean when we sing, but I definitely do mean that. And, and it's, it's important, and it's really interesting. I, my friend Tim led last week, if you were here, and uh, I, he said, How, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, just lead worship for us. And he said, oh, great, I'll do that. And off he went. And he was a bit different than what we're used to. I think that's fair to say, if you were, if you were here. I loved it. Not everybody's cup of tea, but that's okay. Um, the point of that... We get this opportunity to experience God together. That there is something God has ordained that when his people gather together in singing, in praise of him, in prayer, in the reading of scripture, that God promises to indwell that. And it's significant. And yes, there will be, there will be undoubtedly stylistic preferences of that I have no doubt uh, based on generational stuff, based on the kinds of music we like, based on how we're wired as people, do we enjoy that communal thing but it's profoundly important that we realise those things are secondary and the gathering together to worship is primary and so we gather here each week to worship God and that's a rhythm that we genuinely value in this church and the space to worship is incredibly important. And one of the things that interests me and as a challenge to me in this is that we have to make space for different voices. One of the risks of the way that we do worship is that those of us who have the microphone can often just get to dominate and dictate exactly what we're doing all the time. And we try not to be like that, but we need to be, I need to be better at that because we want to be a multi-voiced community where we hear all the voices of our community. So worship is another rhythm that we need to embrace as community. Identity. <clears throat> Our identity, as we talked about last week, when Jesus does this family thing, is profoundly shifted from being one of primary allegiance to our nuclear family to one of being uh, our primary allegiance to the family of God, to the people of God. And that becomes unchanging, unlike the little red passport on the... That was a joke. That didn't go very well. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Forget I said that. That worked much better when I wrote it down earlier, so we'll try again next time. Um, our identity is unchanging as followers of God, but our identity is not just as individual children of God, but as those who belong to the family of God. It's why when you're on holiday, if you get the chance to go to another church, you should feel welcome. There should be something of that place that feels familiar because we worship the same Father. We belong to the same family. There's something profoundly important going on there. So our identity is wrapped up in our community as well and begins to be a rhythm that we can embrace of recognizing who we are when we're in places of challenge and times of difficulty. Reminding ourselves of who we are 
is a really important step in facing all those kinds of questions and difficulties. We are not just floating about as some random individual, but we are rooted in a place where we belong. I actually think that's a profound message for our community, that we have a place where we belong, that our world has a real issue that lots and lots of people struggle with the fact they don't feel like they belong anywhere. And I want to say that anyone who comes through these doors should feel like they belong here. And that's our challenge to make that a reality. And finally, direction. Now, people won't like this one, or some people won't like this one, but I can't read the scriptures and see that it's not true. That actually, we're not supposed to make decisions on our own. We're not supposed to be the kind of people who are solo travelers. Where we come to a signpost like this, this is uh, in New Zealand, and say... Uh, where, where am I going? Oh, well, I fancy Hobart today. Let's go to Hobart. It's only 1,680 kilometers. Uh, we know that guy, Mark Calder. He can run there tomorrow. Um, no, we can't do that. As a community of faith, we should be gathering together when we have these kinds of big choices to make and discerning together. We don't do that very much. It's very non-Western. It's very non-cool. Let me tell you a story about a church. 20 years ago, the pastor of this church approached a group of uh, youngish people. Uh, They were in their, I guess they'd have been in their mid-twenties at that time. Some of them were married. Some of them were single. Most of them uh, had graduated from university uh, and had jobs in the city. And the pastor came to them and said, I I would like you to think about covenanting with our church to commit to living in this community for the next 30 years. That that would be your primary decision-making thing, is you're going to commit to this community, whatever it costs, to be here and to see this church flourish in this community. Now that feels like a big heavy weight, and I suspect if we did that here, there would be a bit of nervousness about asking that question. Because, well, what if my job wants me to go here, or what if I fancy moving here, or what if I'd like to do this? But actually, there were about 35 of them made the commitment that they would do that. And that church grew from a very small church of about 60 or 70 people to a church that was at one time 450. And those people were right at the heart of it. Those people are all still there now. The only people who've moved away are people who died. Everyone else stayed. They made a covenant commitment that they would discern together about what life in that community looked like. And they've seen the fruitfulness of that with people saved, with lives transformed, with a local community that understands that that church is committed to that community. Profoundly significant. What would it look like for us to make decisions together? To be so committed to one another in this church that when we had a big decision to make, we wouldn't just make it on our own, but we would bring it to the church. Maybe not the whole church, maybe to the leadership, maybe to your small group. But that we would expect that the process of discernment would involve the church. I don't think that's most of us' primary way of making decisions. But I want to encourage you that I think maybe it should be. I'll leave that with you.
Community is not easy. In fact, I want to say it's really difficult. It will be costly, it will be challenging. But if we want to practice these kinds of rhythms we're talking about that will bring the fullness of that life that Jesus promises us, then I want to say to you it's necessary. It's as necessary as us embracing those rhythms as individuals. I'll finish with this. As we practice the way of Jesus, we need partners for the journey. A community to help us along the way. Jesus invites all who follow him to be a part of a new family. This family of God is not a social club or a group of friends who look, think, and talk similarly, but a community of apprentices following Jesus' way of life. And despite the work it takes, the fights we will endure, and the learning we will do along the way, together we're figuring out how to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he did. That's the goal of it all. Thank you for listening. I'm going to pray. Uh, we have one song we could finish with. Yeah, Father God, I thank you that you did not call us simply as individuals to follow you, but you called us into a community of faith, a family together, living out the realities of what you've asked us to do. Lord, we thank you for the ways in which that can have profound effects, for the ways that, as Joel testified to, that his ministry, uh, his and Esther's ministry, would not have been possible without the community of faith, encouraging them and provoking them on. Lord, I pray we would see more and more things spring up in this community because of the way that we stir one another on to love and good deeds. Help us to love well that the world might see. Help us to offer hospitality well that all would know that there's a place here for them to belong. Help us to know that our identity is in the family of God primarily. Help us to learn. Help us to offer forgiveness. Help us to discern together. And maybe above all, Lord, help us to worship you as the creator of all things, the one who sits on the throne and who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen.